0: I didn't forget what chapter we were in I promise Matthew 16 and we're going to be in verses 1 through 12 today and we're going to see a theme running between both of these paragraphs probably is listed in your ESV if that's what you're reading through and because of that, as me and brother Caleb were discussing this morning, these texts are just pregnant with meaning. We're not going to wring everything dry, but I think it's more important for us to see the overarching theme between these two paragraphs. And join with me as we read God's Word that He preaches and speaks to us this morning. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test Him. They asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. And He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand? And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? How many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood. He did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Please pray with me for God's blessing. Lord, we come before You. And just as every week, God, we come here, I come behind this pulpit, with a great sense of insufficiency. And God, we ask You today that You would fill us up with Your Word. As the Psalms say, God, we open our mouths, Lord, and uh, if we open our mouths, we believe You'll fill them. I pray that we would anticipate Your Word to speak to us today. I pray that we'd come to the text of Scripture, putting ourselves under it, submitting to it, and looking to learn from You. Please, God, bless us by Your Spirit to preach and to hear and to do all things according to Your will that we might rejoice in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love You. Be with us today in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The mind is a very important topic not just for anthropology, and this is a study of man, but the mind is a very important topic when we consider the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts and the fall of man itself. That is to say, when we fell in Adam, in our federal head, our first parent, we did not just fall in our hearts and in our affections, although that is primary. We didn't just fall into physical disease, we fell in the effects of the mind. That is, because of the fall, we no longer think clearly about anything. Especially spiritual things and the things of God. I'm brought over and over again to the wonderful statement in the Proverbs that he who trusts in his own mind is a fool. He who trusts in his own mind is a fool. And the reason why it's foolish to trust in your own ability to work through especially spiritual matters is because we are fallen in sin. Now, this is certainly true with unbelievers. 1 Corinthians tells us that these things are unable to be even discerned by them, the unspiritual, because they must be discerned by the Spirit of God who has been given to us. We have that wonderful quote from the song that we sing, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, that blind unbelief is what? Sure to err and scan His work in vain. This is what the unbelieving mind is prone to. The unbelieving mind must do. It scans the world. It scans God's works. But it can't find God in it. Why? Because we're fallen in our own sin and sinfulness. But even in us as believers here today, regenerate by the Holy Spirit, made new by the grace of God through belief and faith in the Gospel, our minds still have the effects. Some of the effects of that fall We have belief, but mixed with that belief, we have doubts in our hearts. Mixed with sin and weakness, our certainty mixed with unsurity of even God and His promises. And I believe that the two paragraphs that we've read today in verses 1-12, through they speak to the noetic effects of sin, the effects of sin on the mind of the believer and the unbeliever. And we see this, the central idea here is that Jesus' enemies are sternly rebuked for their unbelief and refusal to believe the truth. And His disciples are warned to beware of false doctrine. Now, the two points I want us to see today, which I believe is the purpose of the text given why Matthew wrote it and why the Holy Spirit moved Matthew to write this text, is that we would be convinced That unbelief ends in spiritual disaster. And secondly, that we would be convinced that earthly mindedness, a mind set on the things of man other than the things of God is extremely dangerous to our souls. With those two points today, that we would be convinced of these things, I want us to first be convinced that unbelief, pure unbelief, not a mixture, Ends in spiritual disaster. And that's what we see in verses 1 through 4. As the Pharisees and Sadducees come to our Savior, we see the unbelief diagnosed and prognosed here. I don't know if that's a word, but that's what I used. We see the unbelief of Christ's enemies first highlighted in the context. And what I mean to say by that is when we see the unbelief of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to Christ, it becomes even more vibrant as we look at the context that surrounds. Why is that? Because we have a fuller revelation of Jesus Christ in this passage, in this chapter, than has been given so far in the book of Matthew. If we step back and even look at the the context of the last few chapters, we see that Jesus is revealing Himself to His disciples and to the crowds through signs. These signs, if we look to chapter 14, we see the feeding of the 5,000. We see Jesus going out after the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on the Sea of Galilee and even calling Peter out to Himself. And then last week, the feeding of the 4,000. And all of these things, they communicate and reveal something about our Savior. And that is that He is able to provide for us in all of our needs. Not only does He heal us, not only does He give us spiritual life, but we can trust Him as we walk and sojourn on this earthly plane in this terrifying wilderness that He can take care of us day to day. He has all authority given to Him to provide for His people so that we can spiritually seek after Him. Not fearing anything. But not only do the signs of Jesus Christ disclose a fuller revelation of who He is in His person, we see it in His teaching. And chapter 16 is a pivotal chapter in the whole book of Matthew. Pivotal. Now, it's pivotal because we have the clearest expression of Jesus Christ given to His disciples and to His church, that He is going to die and be raised again by the power of the Father. Look, look down with me just to see this. Somewhat bookending our section, we see in verse 4, that an evil adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And what is the sign of the prophet Jonah but that he was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish? And the Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and be raised to new life. But even clearer, notice in verse 21. This is actually a structural text that divides Matthew from its first section of his ministry in Galilee to his journey to Jerusalem. Notice what he says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's at this moment in Jesus Christ's life that he has a new emphasis in his teaching towards his disciples. Not that he has never talked on it before, but from this time onward, he begins to emphasize that he must go and suffer. That he must lay down his life passively as the Lamb of God, taking all of God's wrath upon him, and that he will be exalted on the third day to heaven. Pivotal chapter, but... Also in verses 24 through 28, Jesus Christ tells his disciples, Because this is going to be my life, because I must die and raise again, this is going to be your pattern of life. You must take your cross up and follow after me. You must lay down your life so that you might gain it. But perhaps the greatest revelation in this chapter is not the revelation necessarily of Jesus Christ. In his teaching, but the full illumination of who he is to his disciples. And what do I mean by that? In verses 13 through 20, we have the confessional foundation of the church. And what Jesus Christ builds his new temple upon is this confession. In verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We have Jesus Christ and His revelation somewhat uh, turning up the dimmer switch more and more, and the light of God is shining on the person of Christ. And in this text, we see the brightest manifestation of who He is of all chapters we've read so far. But in the midst of all of that, we're confronted with absolute, utter darkness of unbelief. In the midst of all of this light, in the midst of all of this context, where Jesus is choosing to show Himself in a more magnificent way, we have these unbelieving, wicked men coming to Him, showing that they have no light. They've seen none of this context. They refuse to see it. And that is because unbelief shows itself more powerfully in gospel light, right? At this stage in my life, with me and Erica's, with Janie being new in the house, sometimes Janie wakes up at night and Erica will flip on that, that lamp, right? And my response as a husband, it's nice. It's better than what her providence is. I, I roll over from that light, right? And if it's bright enough, I might even cover my head with the blankets to stay asleep, right? We, when we want darkness, we'll do anything we can to find it. And how much truer is it, more true is it with spiritual things? These men, they're seeing the same signs being performed. They're hearing Jesus Christ speak. The data, all the data is reaching their ears. But they refuse to let it go into their hearts. They are turning their head away from the light. They are covering their heads with the blanket of their own self-righteousness and sin. The fuller revelation of Jesus Christ is matched with the fuller animosity and hatred of Jesus' enemies against Him in this text. And this is going to lead to increased hostility throughout the book of Matthew. And it's going to end with these men crucifying, killing the Lord of glory and the author of life. And as we look in our text today, We see this manifested in a number of ways. This utter darkness that is here. Unbelief manifesting itself. Notice, with strange alliances, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to Jesus Christ. Now, these two groups are only mentioned, I believe, four times in Scripture together. It's very rare. And that's because they were on absolutely opposite poles of the theological spectrum. The Pharisees were the more conservative, rigorous, Bible-believing, if you could say that, even though not really. People were the Sadducees. They only accepted the first five books of Moses. They refused to believe in Spirit. They refused to believe in the resurrection. And were almost the materialists of the day. These men hate Jesus so much in His teaching. The Gospel truth that He is going to lay down His life for sinners... That they join alliances together. They'll come after Jesus together on this. It reminds me of Luke 23, 12 that we have on Jesus Christ's death at His crucifixion. It's recorded that Herod and Pilate became friends with each other on that very day. For before this, they had been enemies with each other. The Gospel does a strange work in this world where it takes those who are almost always against one another. It puts them together for the cause of stamping out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stamping it out. So much of a threat was the truth of the gospel that enemies become friends in this text. But notice that they come to him, as Brother Caleb pointed out, to test him and ask him to show a sign from heaven. Now, I want us to look first that they're, they're seeking a sign here. And Jesus Christ says a wicked and adulterous generation are those who seek after signs. It's obviously not a wicked and adulterous generation that receives signs. Because many of the people receive them. But these men, they sought after signs. How ludicrous of a statement is that? After everything that they've seen. Everything that Jesus Christ has done in their sight. Raising a paralyzed man in public so that they would know that Jesus Christ forgives sins. Feeding 4,000 and 5,000, raising people from the dead, feeding and healing people at a distance. And we see them saying, Well, we need another sign from you. What we should think of in this text, I think most clearly in the Old Testament, is the example of Pharaoh, right? As Moses over and over comes to him and by the power of God does these signs to prove that he is the living God. And Pharaoh over and over says, Who's the Lord? Who's the Lord that I should trust Him? Show me something greater. That's what these men are like. Their heart is so deceptive and wicked that they're seeking after a sign even greater than one that will be there. But notice the heart motivation. is to test. A better translation of this would probably be to tempt. This Greek word, peirazo has only been used really one other time in the book of Matthew. And that was in chapter 4 with Satan coming to Jesus Christ to tempt Him for 40 days and 40 nights. These men in their darkness have taken on the likeness of Satan to such a degree where they're coming to the author of life and they're tempting Him. Show me something. Show me something that you haven't shown. Trying to draw Jesus Christ out so that they might attack Him. This sign-seeking is a sign of the unbelief that they have, and this sign-seeking, the spiritual darkness, not only leads them to tempt the Lord, it leads to a true spiritual myopia, where they cannot see things as they ought to see. And we see this in, in verses two through three. That he answered them and said, "When it's evening, you say it'd be fair, and when the, for the sky is red in the morning, it's stormy today. For the the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret." The appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And when we read that they cannot interpret the signs of the times here, it's not saying that they're unable to read the New York Times and discern that the Antichrist is on the rise in the east and he's coming over to us. It's not an eschatological thing. What he's pointing to is you cannot see that the Messiah is now coming into the world. The fullness of time has arrived where the son of man is going to be born under the law born unto a woman to free us from the covenant of works that was in the law and you refuse to see it. You can't discern the signs of the times. You can't discern that today is the day of salvation. And rather than hardening your heart with your own self-righteousness, you need to repent and trust in the one who has come. These men they can they can discern the weather. They spent their time jotting down every day. Oh, the sky was red today. What happens afterward? And after a period of time, they've accumulated some wisdom that says we can even look at the sky in the morning and evening and know what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. But they cannot discern that the Messiah has come into the world. And Jesus' implication is you should have seen that first. You should have seen that first. That's not the more difficult thing to see. It's the easier thing to see. It's so obvious that you are without excuse here without excuse and brothers and sisters I have to say aren't we the same way how often do we spend our time trying to discern in the weather channel what the weather's going to be like today or the stock market or the housing bubble or when liberal totalitarianism is going to rise up in the country and make us all take vaccines and brainwash us okay we try to interpret the signs that are around us in this world but that can take us away from discerning what is true today spiritually for us. It can take our minds off of it. These Pharisees and Sadducees, they are unable to see the glory of Jesus Christ because they are unwilling to see the glory of Jesus Christ. They have already assumed and decided in their hearts that they hate Him and they will do whatever it takes to avoid that spiritual light from coming into their consciences and into their hearts now, what, I'm, what I want to drive at today, and I think is the main purpose of our text, is not to just see the symptoms of unbelief, but the end of that unbelief. The end of that unbelief I want us to see is apostasy from the Gospel, apostasy from the covenant, and abandonment. Learn is verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the prophet Jonah. I want us to think today when we think of these Sadducees and Pharisees about all the gracious providence that God had provided. What do I mean by that? These men were brought up in the Old Covenant community of believers. They had the Scriptures. Many of these men, leaders in their community, had memorized large portions of the Scriptures. Some of the Pharisees probably had memorized the Torah itself. These men had a gracious providence in that they were brought up with the scriptures. Not only that, they were privileged in God's presence to see the Messiah come in the flesh. They saw Jesus Christ, saw his healings and his miracles, heard the gracious words that came from his lips, heard the comfort and peace that God was declaring through him to Israel. But their hardness of heart had led to a terrible state. All of the gracious providence that God had put them under to hear the Word of God, to know the Word of God, to see the Word of God, it ended up being nothing to them. Their hardness of heart leads to a terrible state. Notice the terrible state that they're in. They're called an evil and adulterous generation. Now, if we know our Old Testament Scriptures, and Joey read in Isaiah that you're the, the sons, it's, it's hard language, it's scriptural of A, a woman. Adultery in the Scriptures and the Old Testament prophets especially, it points to a spiritual state where men and women forsake the living God who made covenant with them and go after idols. And this darkness of heart, this refusal to believe the Gospel, Jesus Christ says it's an adulterous generation. It's an evil generation that does this. This points to nothing else than they're they're falling away from biblical... Truth. Their hardness of heart had led to that. It's led to their forsaking of God and the truth of God. Um, you might look back if you, in Matthew, Matthew 12, 45, a parallel passage that Jesus Christ in his grace has repeated to them. We see Jesus ending in chapter 12 and verse 45 with this parable of the demons being cast out of a man and returning with seven others. Notice in verse 45, then it goes and brings with itself seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last day of that person is worse than the first. Notice, so will it be with this with this evil generation. These men had darkened their heart, refused to believe the gospel, and they are just going to slip further and further into darkness and hardness of heart and this is even more brought out by Jesus response to these men that there's only one sign going to be given to this generation it's the sign of Jonah it's Jesus Christ dying and being resurrected from the grave and we might think well that one sign it's the greatest sign that's ever been given of course they are going to repent at that but they only become harder in their hearts they go after the church with a greater fervency and hatred It does not soften them. It makes it harder, makes them harder yet. And I want to tell you that the last words of this paragraph I think are the most terrifying. So he left them and departed. They'd been hearing the words of Christ. At this point, Jesus has been wholly confined to Galilee in his ministry in the book of Matthew. And He's going to leave and go to the North Sea of Galilee, then travel upward to Bethsaida, and after that, He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's never going to see these men again. Except for perhaps at Passover. But He leaves them and departs. He's never going to return to Galilee. And as we've pointed out so many times in the book of Matthew, we look at the gracious providence of God and what He's given to us, but God in His judgment sometimes removes the Gospel witness from a culture. And that is a terrifying thing. Turn with me to the book of Amos. The book of Amos. And that's before Obadiah. It's after Joel. Okay? So Hosea, Joel, Amos. I want us to notice the terror of this. God gives gracious providence that we could even sit here and hear the Gospel today is a grace of God But the terrifying thing is if He leaves and departs from us. Notice in verse 11 of Amos chapter 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. I wanted to be impressed upon... The terrible and terrifying state that unbelief leads leaves the person who is unbelieving in. And the purpose that I want us to see today is that we ought to know the end of unbelief. Know the end of it. I don't want you to be at all surprised at the end of unbelief. But you should leave this room today with the solid knowledge that unbelief leads an absolute disaster, eternal disaster. And I'd ask you today, every heart today, to ask yourself this question. Are you in the same condition as these men? Do you refuse to believe the gospel and put yourself over the Lord Jesus Christ and say, you need to prove it to me? You need to prove it to me for me to believe Never mind all the grace you've wrought in my family and my friends. Never mind the witness of the Holy Spirit convicting me of sin. Never mind the historical reality that our Savior rose from the dead. Never mind all of that. You need to prove it to me. Oh, brother, sister, I ask you to run to Him today. To run to Him today. And the reason you can run to Him today is if you're ashamed of your unbelief, that's good, But He accepts any that come to Him. Accepts all that come to Him. There is a Savior dead for you if you come to Him. Willing to accept. Never has turned any away. I want you to know the condition of unbelief and you should not lie to your own heart. The condition of unbelief is absolutely disastrous and we should be convinced of it, but we also must be convinced that earthly-mindedness is spiritually dangerous for us today. Now, I want you to know that these two texts are connected and that's my my main goal today. (sighs) Notice with me. As they leave this place, and they get back in the boat, and they're going to the other side, the north side of Galilee most likely here. The disciples... They they realize they forgot to bring bread. And Jesus corrects them. Now, the contrast that we have here is important. What we have is utter unbelief contrasted with a struggling belief of a true believer in God. Okay? Now, that's really important for us. And this is where the rubber really hits the road for all of you as members of Redeemer Covenant Church. I was reading in a commentary this week of a very well-respected man who who I I love his commentary for the most part. And he comes to this text and he says the contrast that we should see here is that of dumb and dumber. Those are his words, not mine. Um, the, the the, The Pharisees, they were ignorant in their unbelief and so we should expect what they did. But it's inexcusable what the disciples did in this passage. They, they were shunning the light of Christ to a greater degree. And I would just tell you today, that's, I think, absolutely wrong in this text. It's absolutely wrong. I think it first misunderstands the context of what we're looking at where the disciples are struggling to understand the identity of the Messiah. And they have great revelations, but mixed with their human sinfulness. But more than that, I think that it puts an undue burden on every heart in this room here today. That somehow, I'm worse than the Pharisees and Sadducees because I I struggle with doubt and unbelief at times in my life. That's absolutely not the case. The true contrast, I believe here, is total disbelief in the Pharisees and Sadducees contrasted with a mixture of belief and unbelief that, that exists in every human heart. Every Christian experiences this. I think it's Thomas Boston who said that if there's no doubt in your heart at all about any of the truths of Scripture, we have reason to doubt maybe that that faith is even genuine, right? And we might go through moments of that, but if we look at the entirety of our heart life with our Lord, there are many times we vacillate. We go up and down and back and forth. And again, to, to point to the evidence of our context When we look last week at the feeding of the 5,000, I want us to notice the mixture of belief and unbelief in the disciples' heart. It doesn't seem like there is any unbelief at all in them that he could heal everybody that came to him. It's not recorded. But yet there is a mixture of unbelief that he could provide for these Gentiles in the wilderness. If we look at verses 13 through 20, we see the most amazing contrast. In verses 13 through 20, we see the amazing faith of Peter as God the Father overcomes the effects of sin on his mind and has him confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, the Messiah to come. But we know the rest of the story in verses 21 through 23, don't we? Right after that, after Peter makes this amazing confession that the church is going to be built upon. Right after that, Jesus starts to unveil, well, this is going to be my mission. This is how I'm going to accomplish building my church. I'm going to die and be raised again. And Peter says, not so, Lord. It's not going to happen with you. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes him. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. There's a mixture of belief and unbelief in the heart of Peter. And isn't it true that Peter is so characteristic of every one of us in this regard? We can sit here on Sunday morning, I hope, at points, and we can say, oh, praise God that He's my Messiah and King. I have a full conviction and assurance that He has saved me from my sin. No matter what I had done, He had done it for me. And by Tuesday night... We've seen all of our sin put before us. The devil has thrown it in our face, and we start to believe his lies that that my righteousness is what earns my way to heaven. Isn't it true? This is an amazing point. Peter being a common picture of the instability of our hearts, and the disciples in this paragraph showing their instability. I want us to know, brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you believe all the words and works of Jesus Christ, you should be completely comforted that Christ covers your remaining unbelief that exists within your heart with His grace. That He is the only one that has ever fully trusted and perfectly trusted the Father. Even to go through the valley of the shadow of death that he could lay down his life knowing that the wrath of the Father was going to come upon him, and yet he was going to emerge out the other side of that tomb. And that is imputed to your account freely. Freely. All the belief of Christ is imputed to you. We can say with that man in Mark 9, I believe, help my unbelief without any fear of rejection. Without any fear of judgment. We can say, I have an unbelieving heart in part, Lord. Unite my heart to fear Your name. And we can know that He hears that prayer. And that He forgives us of our sin. There's an instability to our belief to some degree or another, and this is the common universal universal Christian experience. It's common. I want us to see that utter unbelief here is being contrasted with struggling belief. But... That blessed truth that we and our unbelief is covered by the blood of Christ should not imply at all that we should be comfortable with that mixture in our heart. We know that it exists and we can be comforted in the fact that Christ covers it, but we must be very careful not to be comfortable with that, to be comfortable. In our sinful unbelief. And the reason for that, I believe, being the point of verses 5 through 12, is that earthly mindedness, setting our minds on the thing of man rather than the things of God, it causes us to be unguarded about spiritual danger. I, I, I hope I'm right, and I hope to show that to you. Notice in verses 5 through 6, Jesus Christ's concern for His disciples. His great concern. He tells them very plainly, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The leaven. And we know that the picture of leaven or yeast, when we put it in a lump of bread, that it slowly expands until it fills the whole thing. The Pharisees and Sadducees, as the respected teachers of the day, in their doctrine was some leaven that even some of the twelve apostles Jesus thought was possible that they would appropriate that that into their doctrine. That that would expand and leave them in a spiritually disastrous place. So, the question that we have here today is what is the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? And that's a difficult question to answer because they are so opposed in their different viewpoints theologically. Some didn't even believe in the Spirit or resurrection from the dead. And the other side was so rigorous that it added laws to God's law and so greatly, greatly offended God Himself. D.A. Carson, I think it's helpful. If we look at just the context of chapter 16, he says that this is an attitude of unbelief. It's a cynicism towards Jesus Christ. And that's certainly true, isn't it? That both of these parties, even though they were theologically far apart, both of them are united in the fact that they have a cynical unbelief to the Messiah coming. But, I think if we compare Scripture with Scripture here, that we find that there's something else that united them together. Turn to Luke chapter 12. We'll go to Luke 12 and Romans 10. As I believe the clear teaching of Scripture, what is the... Leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees together. I want us to notice in Luke chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, He began to say to His disciples first, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And you say, well, that's 11 of the Pharisees. Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 12 and verse 56. Just a page over probably for you. Notice that in this little paragraph... ...this is a parallel to what Jesus Christ had taught in Matthew 16. When you see a cloud, cloud rising in the west... ...you say a shower is coming and so it happens. When you see the south wind blowing... ...you say there will be a scorching heat and it happens. Notice, you hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you don't know how to interpret the present time. So what unites these two groups together is certainly a cynicism towards Jesus Christ, but it's also hypocrisy. And I think added to that definition of hypocrisy is Romans chapter 10. I hope you're sticking with me. I know I'm going a bunch of different places to prove one point, but I think it's helpful for us. Romans chapter 10 as we consider what is the leaven that we're warned about, the Pharisees and Sadducees, notice verses 2 through 4. Paul talking, he says, for I bear them, that is all the Jews, not just the Pharisees, Pharisees and said, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes the hypocrisy that they're guilty of is pretending that they're seeking after God and seeking after God's ways but they're doing it in a self-righteous spirit creating their own laws creating their own way and seeking after God in those means rather than submitting to the righteousness that's revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Self-righteousness, I would propose to you, is the fundamental baseline thing that is the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus warns even His twelve apostles not to swallow the poisonous leaven of self-righteousness because even a little may spread and irrevocably damage the soul. Jesus wants them to understand that. Beware of their leaven. And... This leads to, I don't want to say humorous, it's probably sinful of me, but when I'm reading this text, I, I almost had to laugh at the confusion of the disciple that Jesus gives this solemn, we've seen the end of unbelief, and I'm warning you to beware of that leaven. And the Pharisees say, oh, we didn't bring any bread. It's shocking, isn't it? It it reminds me, I don't know if any of you deal with this at your house, if you have young children, but my daughter can be just absolutely transfixed on the utensil she uses to eat. Sometimes she just wants a spoon. And it's almost like if I went to my daughter and I bent down to her and said, listen, you see this socket here in the wall? Don't stick a fork in this socket if you do that. And the thing that comes out of her mouth is, but I want a Spoon. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. made sense to me when I wrote it. But the point here... (laughs) is that the disciples are so transfixed in their minds... on the things of this earth... that they totally miss the crucial teaching of their Messiah. They totally miss it. And Jesus corrects them and tells them... don't be anxious about these material things. Haven't you seen me provide to crowds of people... You should not be worried about these material things. It's taking your mind off of what I actually want you to focus on. I want you to be aware of their leaven of self-righteousness. I want you to be aware of their hypocrisy and their cynicism towards me. But your fascination with bread and earthly things is taking your mind completely away. Listen, aren't we prone to this? I don't know how many times a week I'm reading my Bible and I'm so concerned with the conversation I'm going to have or I'm so concerned with whatever it is that I totally miss what I just read. Right? How many times have you sat here on Sunday and you're hearing a sermon and you're so concerned about what your kids are doing or whatever it might be that you miss the point of what God is trying to tell us? Now, there are certain things that certainly take us away providentially. If your child's screaming in your ear, there's nothing you can do about that. But if it's a concern and anxiety of your heart that's causing you to miss spiritual truth, you must correct that. We have to hear what Jesus Christ is telling us. We must kill anxiety, brothers and sisters. It's a biblical command, but killing anxiety is not just good for your mental health. It's good for your spiritual maturation. It's the only way we can give proper... Attention to our souls. It's the only way we can give proper attention to our souls is to make sure we're not overly concerned with the things of this earth so that we're missing what Jesus Christ says. They were almost on the verge of missing such an important point that they could delve into their own self righteousness and miss the gospel. And so we must be jealous above all things to guard the gospel. We must be jealous of it. We must beware that our minds are prone to error. We're prone to wander in our hearts. And that we cannot trust our own minds. And the first point I want to make, just three quickly, is that the Gospel is it always at danger of being lost from generation to generation. Now that might be a shocking thing for you to hear among a bunch of people that believe in God's sovereignty, but Martin Luther himself... Said that the gospel is always one generation from being completely lost. And if you're skeptical about that, I just ask you to turn to Galatians chapter one. Galatians chapter one. The preciousness of the gospel, as well as it is to our own hearts, and I pray that we delight in it so much, if we don't continue delighting in it and guarding it, it can be the next generation. Not the gospel itself, but the presence of the gospel in our churches. Notice in Galatians 1.6, this is a church, by the way, planted by the Apostle Paul. Probably the first letter written in the New Testament in the early 50s. Notice what he says. Church, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. We should let that sit there for a minute, shouldn't we? These men... Maybe ten years after the planting of this church, Paul hears of what they're doing and they're turning to another Gospel. That they're adding circumcision to the laws that God would require and perhaps believing without observing the laws, the ceremonial laws of Moses, you can't be saved. And Paul says you're turning from Christ in that. And you're trusting in your own self-righteousness and ability and works. We must realize that the Gospel, the preciousness of the Gospel to our church, in our own hearts, it's always a danger of being lost. There's always temptation to take our mind off of what God has done for us and putting on what we do for ourselves. So what can keep us safe? I, this is the last passage I'll have you turn to. It's Philippians chapter 3. What can keep us safe? From letting the, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees invade us, our church and our hearts, I would say in verse 1 that rejoicing in the Gospel keeps us safe. Notice what he says. Familiar passage. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me. And notice, but it is safe for you. For seeking safety. That the Gospel would be preserved. And that we would set our minds on the things of the Gospel. The most wonderful thing that we can do is give time and attention to delighting in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That He took all of our sin, all of our unbelief on His own shoulders and suffered for it so that we can live free before God. That we would rejoice in that and delight in it. That we would be of our sins. This keeps us safe, but there's something else that keeps us safe as well. And it goes along with it notice in verses 2 through 3 watching out for anti-gospel things keeps us safe we rejoice and the idea that Paul has is we rejoice in the Lord alone and that's brought out in verses 2 through 3 look out for the dogs look out for those evil doers look for those who mutilate the flesh for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in The flesh. The amazing thing that Paul does here is he's talking about the Judaizing heretics that would want us to observe the law of Moses to be saved. And he says, these are the true dogs, the unclean animals. These are the true evildoers. And those who believe Christ put no confidence in the flesh, but trust in Him alone, we're the true circumcision. We worship God In truth. And so we must be jealous, brothers and sisters, to guard the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do that in a couple of ways. First, we want to realize that the end of unbelief is absolute spiritual destruction. Eternal spiritual destruction. But on top of that, I would exhort you today to be careful of earthly-mindedness and worries that creep into our heart that can choke the Word so that it becomes unfruitful. So that we don't hear spiritual warnings. I think we must be aware of that. That we don't end up like Peter at the end of the verse. that Jesus has to say, you're setting your mind on the things of man and not the things of God. We have to work at that. We have to work so that the truth and the light of Jesus Christ is more real to us than the present earthly circumstances we find ourselves in. I believe that's the warning of this passage, and it's only done by the Holy Spirit of God. It can only be affected by the Holy Spirit of God. And as we turn our eyes to the communion table today, we meditate on these realities. What strikes me the most in thinking about communion is that I am so weak in my mind to think about spiritual things so unable of my own self to draw my eyes from my own concerns to Him that God was pleased not to just give me verbal sermon, but a sermon put before our eyes today. That we could look at it. That we could see that Jesus Christ on the night that He was betrayed, He took bread and broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.